This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today, we're doing The Whale, and I'll kick us off. The Whale came out at the end of 2022. As we record this, it may still be playing in theaters near you. It stars Brendan Fraser as Charlie, a reclusive English professor who conducts all his classes online with his camera turned off. You see, Charlie is morbidly obese. He's at severe risk of congestive heart failure, and he can die at any time. Charlie wasn't always like this. Some years ago, Charlie left his wife and his daughter to be with a young male lover. But the young man was raised in an evangelical church, and he is never able to forgive himself for his sexuality. Eventually, the young man commits suicide, and it is at this point that Charlie completely loses control of his eating. His nurse is the young man's sister. The young man often starved himself to punish himself for his sins. The sister grew accustomed to begging her brother to eat. So, when Charlie began overeating, she couldn't sort out how to get him to stop. More often than not, she ended up feeding him. By the time the film starts, She's been feeding him for a long while. She warns him about his diet and asks him to go to the hospital, but she continues to bring him food. Charlie won't go to the hospital. Ostensibly, his reason is that it's too expensive. But we eventually find out that Charlie has more money than he lets on. He's hoping to leave this money to his daughter, Ellie. Ellie is in bad shape. Her father's departure has given her some rather pronounced psychological problems. She doesn't feel loved or cared about, and she often takes these feelings out on the people around her. But Charlie believes in his daughter. Years ago, she wrote an essay about Moby Dick. Charlie liked it so much, he insists it be read to him whenever he worries his heart is about to fail. The film is shot almost entirely within the boundaries of Charlie's apartment. It's a series of conversations between Charlie and a handful of people who come in and out of his space. In addition to Ellie and the nurse, we also get frequent visits from a young missionary. The missionary hopes to convert Charlie to the very church of which his deceased lover was once a member. Sometimes these people visit at the same time, and when that happens, there's friction. At one stage, Charlie's ex-wife visits. Now and then a pizza guy swings by. Apart from the students on the computer screen, this is Charlie's whole world. He's too big to go anywhere else. Charlie's impending demise forces him to deal directly with certain questions that are usually swept under the rug. Charlie's romantic relationships have ended ignominiously. His daughter showed so much promise, but she's now struggling in school, refusing to do her work. Charlie tries to get back in her life by offering to do her homework for her. He's desperate to inspire her to write again. He's an advocate for the value of literature, the value of writing, the capacity of the writer to access truth and beauty. There's an earnestness to all of this. He just wants to read honest essays that grapple with the big questions. But more often than not, his students are only looking to write instrumentally to get good grades and good jobs. Ellie's essay about Moby Dick is the most honest essay Charlie has ever read. It makes him believe in her no matter how far off the tracks she goes. I think the content of the essay matters. It reads as follows. In the amazing book Moby Dick by the author Herman Melville, the author recounts his story of being at sea, 
In the first part of his book, the author, calling himself Ishmael, is in a small seaside town, and he is sharing a bed with a man named Queequeg. The author and Queequeg go to church and later set out on a ship captained by the pirate named Ahab, who is missing a leg and very much wants to kill the whale which is named Moby Dick and which is white. In the course of the book, the pirate Ahab encounters many hardships. His entire life is set around trying to kill a certain whale. I think this is sad because this whale doesn't have any emotions and doesn't know how bad Ahab wants to kill him. He's just a poor big animal. And I feel bad for Ahab as well, because he thinks that his life will be better if he can kill this whale, but in reality, it won't help him at all. I was very saddened by this book, and I felt many emotions for the characters, and I felt saddest of all when I read the boring chapters that were only descriptions of whales, because I knew that the author was just trying to save us from his own sad story just for a little while. This book made me think about my own life, and then it made me feel glad for my... The essay is never read past the word my. The whale is straightforwardly a lost object, the thing Ahab thinks can bring wholeness and completeness, but which in point of fact can do nothing of the kind. What is the alternative to pretending that life is about whales? Charlie suggests that life is about honesty, about confronting the truth, however painful. This is, of course, something Charlie himself has straightforwardly failed to do. He has avoided the truth by eating continuously. He has avoided the truth by refusing to show his face to his students. His philosophical commitment to truth is not realized in his praxis. He is an admirer of his daughters because he feels she possesses this commitment in a way he does not. He knows himself to have lived dishonestly, but he seeks redemption through her honesty. So when she calls him names and is cruel to him, he revels in it. And when others reprimand her, he quickly jumps to her defense. Honesty involves discomfort, and this film purposefully sets out to make us feel uncomfortable. When Charlie eats, it is manifestly clear that something terrible is happening. His eating is not treated as benign, but as a symptom of a malaise. He is sick, but so is the country in which he lives. When Charlie watches the news, the 2016 Republican primary is always the story. In a country that is losing touch with honesty, with the very concept of truth, there is an absence of meaning, an absence of purposefulness. This absence makes itself felt in Charlie's life. Having lost the roles of husband, father, and lover, and seen the discipline of English reduced to an instrumental mechanism for preparing the workers of tomorrow, Charlie has not been given anything for which to live. Convinced he can do little good for his daughter whilst breathing, he squirrels away as much money as possible to protect her from capitalism and give her the freedom necessary to live a truly honest life. When he finally admits that this is indeed his plan, he embraces the honesty he has searched for in others. The wonderful thing about this film is that for Charlie it is honesty, not food, that is the true object of his search. Charlie is an American Diogenes. He cannot find an honest man. The one person who strikes him as honest, Ellie, holds him in utter contempt. When we are too fundamentally estranged from truth, as he is fundamentally estranged from his daughter, we are forced to seek replacements, and these replacements are often the things that drive us to despair. But if we have the strength to face that despair, to see it for what it is without running away, this confrontation with the real grants us a lucidity that enables us to, in a very substantive sense, think about our own lives. 
This is what it means to live the self-examined life. It is only when failure is visible that failure can teach us its lesson and drive us to change things. The United States is a country that has been running from its failures for a long time. We all need the kind of despair the whale offers. This is a country where economic desperation is driving more and more young people into the STEM fields, where the human past is a stick with which to assault one's enemies rather than something to thoughtfully reflect upon, where consumption, and yes, this includes eating to excess, has become an ubiquitous coping mechanism so common that we are increasingly unable even to recognize it as a symptom. The whale is, I think, the best film of 2022. This year, the sequels to Top Gun and Avatar have received Oscar nominations for Best Picture. The Whale has been omitted as the Academy runs from the many people who hate this film because they cannot be honest with themselves about the world outside their window, let alone the world inside it. Anyway, let's hear what Helen has to say. That was great. Really good. Actually, I love what you were saying about American lost object its need for a lost object um yeah and the, the whole logic this this obviously we've talked about it so many times uh, it's part of the whole logic of, of capitalism and it's interesting um just in terms of your mentioning its recognition as as an awards worthy film i didn't realize how divisive the film was um until i sort of researching and one of the i mean one of the elements of the film that i found really interesting was the sort of the idea, yeah, as you point out, authenticity and, and intersubjective sort of con intersubjectivity, connection with others, that kind of thing. Um, it's interesting. This film is based on a play. Well, I'll first I'll first talk about the 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 reason for the divisiveness. I think the reason for the divisiveness comes in the fact that it is quite a stagey film. So, on the one one hand, and on the other hand, it's to do with this question of representation, which comes back to this idea of honesty, authenticity, that kind of thing. So in terms of its staginess, which again, this this relates to this idea of authenticity, staginess appears to be something that's removed from something authentic. And there's different forms of kind of um, dramatic representation that take place in the theatre. And this um, film is based on a 2018 play, I believe. And it is very much, it's, you know, a, a reenactment of a play to the extent where, as you mentioned, Benjamin, it, it takes place in, a, place in, a, in an apartment which could effectively be a stage. And um, because of the way the script is written, even though I think Brendan Fraser's acting is not of the stagey variety, the it's like the, the way that theatre is written and performed is is quite, and this is to do with the the history of, of theatre, but also the distance from the stage that, that people... Um, sit and the, the need to sort of project and the need to sort of like in, inhabit emotions in a different way and cameras pick up acting, uh, the, the movements of an actor in a, in a in a more subtle way. So you often have sort of a non-acting kind of style. So when something is more more um, theatrically dramatic, it can be quite jarring. Although when you look at cinema from different nations, there can be a different relationship to this notion of staginess. Um, but it's interesting because even on in terms of like the artistic elements of the film, the sort of aesthetic level, a lot of it is quite, you know, um, deliberate, like even the 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 soundtrack sounds like whale sounds. It's got a very blue sort of watery tone to it. And I think this is all it's all very interesting. But that was one of the reasons I think some of the critics um, said that they didn't didn't like the film because of its its staginess. But as I said, like the fact is, it's, it's based on a stage play and 
a lot of the, the the level of acting that is able to be achieved is to do with the writing. So if the the like of the text is written for stage actors and it's going to come out of this sort of stage. Um, but the other reason was this idea of representation in terms of somebody who was not had to put on a sort of 21 stone suit and wasn't the fat person that they were depicting. And obviously this representation question is an interesting one because like everything in this universe, because we come from contradiction, nothing would exist without the, the sort of the third, the antagonism that exists between the on and the off, the one and the two, the light and the dark, whatever. You, there, you cannot universally, it seems, um, overlay this idea um, that every group should represent themselves necessarily. I mean, often we might, that we can understand to some extent why there is a push for this idea that people should have a chance to represent their group because there aren't very many roles for X group or whatever. But of course, then you come against this idea of the the fact that um, acting is about inhabiting another experience. That's the whole point of acting. Um, and further to this, there is something in the ideology of sort of representation identity politics that misses the universal of the human experience, which, which it does not deny the um, unique experience of different groups at different continual times in history, but that there is something that does transcend identity, which is subjectivity itself, which is the fact that we all have an unconscious, and that unconscious allows us to have subjectivity and to think, and therefore to be able to experience and and play with other forms of identity. And it's interesting that obviously when it comes to sort of theories of sexual identity and gender identity, that's sort of taken up upon. But um, in this instance, so apparently George Clooney, so this was something that was offensive to some people that, you know, it, this was somebody representing somebody of size or whatever. But George Clooney apparently had been developing this film for a long time and was trying to make it work with somebody of this exact sort of physical um, situation. And it just was impossible. So there are situations like, for instance, um, if you were to have, you know, somebody who is um, the story about somebody in a hospice on the verge of dying. Well, in that situation, you're not going to be able to get somebody who is in a hospice, hospice on the verge of dying to play that role, you know, you have to have somebody. And even though we might say, you know, okay, the ambition to can to to use somebody who might have, you know, some experience of something, or you know, I do understand that certain groups don't have very many roles and that kind of stuff. But you know, I think this is an instance where it's quite clear that for material necessity, there's <laughs> a reason. Um, but also, you know, it's interesting in terms of because this film might not be recognized um maybe as much as you were saying that it should benjamin in terms of awards i mean um yeah but but the acting has been recognized and there is sort of a fetish i would say about physical transformation thinness as well as largeness and often it's very much celebrated when an actor loses a lot of weight um but then i mean he he did not physically gain the weight, but there was this sort of physical transformation, which is always sort of interesting. And I'm interested to the reason why that is. But to get back to this idea of sort of interpersonal connection, it's interesting this this play was written in 2018, 
Um, and it's about somebody who is isolated, working remotely, teaching via Zoom, has his camera off. And that this is kind of point to the fact that, that COVID wasn't a unique sort of um, removal from the world, a sudden change, sudden transformation, but rather an acceleration of the kind of um, isolation and um, lack of interhuman connection that was already existing as a result of of capitalism and factors that result from capitalism, including the obesity epidemic. Psychoanalytically, interestingly enough, like um, obviously uh, weight uh, can it can can have a lot of meaning um, in terms of obviously there's a, there's physical reasons why why these states occur, um, but often humans um, turn to food. Uh, in some situations, I mean, I'm, I personally, just to show my hand, uh, am very much uh, not a kind of believer that obesity is anybody's fault. I think it's actually a symptom of um, something, mater- material conditions. Um, but yeah, eating less or eating more or um, having sort of more weight or less weight can be a signifier for some people in some situations of um, creating a barrier to uh, to connections with others. Um, and this is just from a psychoanalytic perspective, just um, um, there's also psychoanalytically, like anything can represent anything. So, you know, don't, don't at me on this generalization. But also, you know, sometimes anorexia can be a way that um, people halt states of appeal to others, for example, going through puberty. So it's an interesting way um, food can be a way of, of soothing oneself, of controlling what enters and what leaves your body. Um, and food, you know, this is precisely, uh, I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I actually, I do think that obesity is more of a kind of a medical thing than a psychological thing. But, um, in any case, because nothing is ever purely one thing or another, the way that humans relate to food is unique to humans. And it speaks to the division at the level of subjectivity, the, the feature of drive, the illogic that makes us human. And if it weren't for the illogic, then we wouldn't have human subjectivity. My mum used to always say, my mum's one of these kind of like hyper-rationalist, just eat less kind of people. And she's she's very lucky to be endowed with a really fast metabolism. But she would always use the example of my, um. we had a rabbit, a house rabbit, and she was like, this rabbit, we can learn so much from him. He never, he always just eats exactly the right amount. He never eats more. He never eats less. It's like, that's because he is driven by instinct and humans revolve around drive. Completely different things. <laughs> um, but interestingly, um, writing and communication and like literature plays a really, really big role in this film. And it's almost as if uh, the literature is is expresses a form of um, interpersonal communication that resists these. You know, Moby Dick is is one of these great works that well, it is that it's the really the feature of this this film. And I do think Moby Dick is one of those great books that revolves around contradiction. That's why it's good, and it revolves around you know the lost object and things like this. Um, but it's almost as if this. He, this yearning for what literature offers, which is beyond the realm of market logic, um, is something that really marks the film. So in the film itself, his his uh, 
communication with his students is mediated obviously by the internet. Um, it's to do with um, projecting something that he is. And obviously there's this idea of sort of, um, you know, this film's about realness in terms of the way his his uh, physical state is expressed. Obviously it's realness that involves sort of staginess, as I said before, but social media obviously involves a projection, um, a commodified version of yourself and a commodified version that doesn't reflect the complex nature and contradictory nature of oneself. And that isn't just to do with the way that we project, but the way that the projection is interpreted because of the physical structure of social media itself. Um, and it's interesting, I think there is some kind of dichotomy here between the text as and and this character Charlie's obsession with this idea of authenticity through writing and the antagonistic dimension of the film, which is the isolation, falsity, and lack of human connection in the sort of capitalized upon technological internet world. All right, let's hear what Nina has to say. Yeah, very nice uh, comments from from both of you. Um, yeah, I enjoyed this film, and I was just actually looking at the uh, the scores on Rotten Tomatoes, and it's one of those films where the critic score is much lower than the audience score, right? Which I I think I can imagine, right, that this is what's happened. And I I, I deliberately didn't read the um, reviews, any reviews of the of the whale, because I I sort of vaguely knew that it was divisive, but I didn't want to know like why. But I. I before I went to see it, if you see what I mean. So, the uh, the the uh, the critic score is sixty five percent, but the audience score is ninety one percent, which is you know really quite high. Um, and I think there are many reasons to uh, to like this film. I've I've actually uh, I, I watched Aronofsky's first film when it came out, Pi, which is a very long time ago now. Uh, it's a very like nineties soundtrack. It's this kind of black and white film about uh, kind of maths and madness, and it's quite cerebral. Uh, I don't know if either of you have seen it, and. Um, I've seen quite a few of his other films. Uh, uh, Requiem for a Dream <laughs> is particularly brutal. Very interesting film about addiction, um, and you know, I, I think he's you know really quite a uh, interesting, unique uh, filmmaker. Um, and yeah, so I I went to the cinema on my own to see this film, uh, which is always slightly uh, eerie and uncanny experience, but like enjoyable too in this like elevated modern way. And I tweeted about it. And people really like this tweet that I, you know, there's something about going to the cinema on your own is this, you know, <laughs> intriguing and amb ambivalent experience. Because uh, I don't normally I don't normally do it, but I had to watch it for this, and, and no one would come with me. Uh, just because they were busy, not because they didn't want to see the film. But anyway, so I watched it in the afternoon uh, in the Prince Charles Cinema in this very old cinema in, in London. It's quite quite cheap, quite uh, quite a sort of special place to go uh, near Leicester Square. Um, and yeah, I was really struck, first of all, by the aspect ratio, which is I'm not a technical film person, but in the cinema, it was very obvious that the uh, it was uh, unusual uh uh, ratio. So I looked it up uh, and it's a 4-3 academy ratio, which I'm sure Helen understands, but basically it's almost like a square. So like four to three. So, um, you know, and that was very interesting. And I, I saw the, 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 the sort of curtains go in and I thought, oh, all right. Okay. So it's almost like a square film. Um, 
And, you know, it could be that they wanted to, Aronofsky wanted to create this uh, claustrophobia, which is very, very apparent, you know, like, like you've said already, it's set in the apartment. Uh, nothing ever happens uh, to leave the apartment apart from, well, we discover one, another room, a very tidy room. Uh, and at the end, there's a kind of burst of light from the outside, right? But there's very, there's occasional scenes from outside. So you can see the apartment, you can see people delivering pizza, for example. But yes, it's an extremely claustrophobic film. It's very theatrical. It's obviously based on a play. Apparently the play was written from someone who's suffered from uh, binge eating, right? So it was written, as as they would say in contemporary parlance, uh, from somebody's lived experience, right? So if people were criticizing this film for its uh, supposed cruelty or its representation of somebody who's uh, morbidly obese, um, I, you know, I think they're, I think it's, um, I don't think it is cruel. I don't think it is an unfair depiction or whatever. Um, and besides uh, the idea that we could simply say that all negative portrayals of pathological states are, are therefore somehow cruel to people suffering from them, I think is, uh, you know, is untrue. And Helen has spoken about this more um, eloquently already. And I I think, you know, there is something kind of very, very striking about Brendan Fraser's character, um, about the wellness. You know, I, I, I thought it would be kind of overwhelmingly about the eating but it's not really it's also a film about religion it's a film about homosexuality and the incompatibility of a certain kinds of christianity with homosexuality um it's also a film about writing as you said and honesty um and also about the kind of zoom culture um and the aspect ratio at the beginning the first scene is is of the the zoom uh, screen or zoom equivalent and with his black square in the middle um, and I think it's actually quite an interesting meditation, not only on, on the whale in Moby Dick, but also Jonah in the whale, um, himself as the as the whale, um, but also um, of uh, our relationship to to technology and and distance and his kind of um, endless plea for this honest writing, which he's trying to kind of get out of everybody, um, is I think also a commentary, or I read it as a potential commentary on AI. So not just the kind of calculating writing that the students thought they needed to do to pass, you know, the, the way in which we turn ourselves into machines in order to achieve a particular goal, the way in which he turns himself into a machine when he's eating, you know, and I think that his relationship with, with Liz, who's his uh, friend, who you you realize is the sister of the the the, the man who committed suicide um, but i think it, the reason why she feeds him is because the and what maybe why um he eats is because his boyfriend had stopped eating you know so i i got the impression that liz was making up for this you know she was trying to feed the, her brother, if you like, essentially, and and because she couldn't do so any longer, it was sort of transferred onto, you know. So there's this kind of thing about the asymmetry and the imbalance and people trying to overcorrect, basically. Like the, similarly with the daughter, her attempt to overcorrect for her own trauma by being kind of absolutely, uh, you know, like kind of awful, like to exact an exaggerated degree. Um, but in the end, this film is also so so just on the point about the resistance of technologies. I think it's about the reduction to the machine 
machine, right? If you like, so that the that what resists, for example, if we think about ChatGPT or whatever future we're facing with these sub two two essays written by a machine that tell you repeat a load of facts that they've just sort of you know the AI has no body, right? The AI the AI can't feel, but it also can't write poetry. Well, it can write poetry, but it can't write poetry as a human being, right? Would be the point, right? So what does it mean to write honestly? I liked Benjamin's point very much about uh, Diogenes and and the kind of uh, quest for honesty and you know can I find a truthful man and you know yes he is obsessed with this this kind of idea in 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 writing trying to find it in the writing trying to find it in himself in his daughter um, you know and even in quite moving scene with his former uh, wife who's played by um, oh. Uh, the, Samantha the woman in Morton. Samantha Morton, right? Who's a very interesting actor, right? She was in Morton Color and many films uh, before. Um, yeah, so she has a small part, but but the you know the mother is sort of there in the background, but she then appears um, at one stage and she sort of has a drinking problem. Everybody has a kind of problem of imbalance, whether it's too much rage, to you know binge eating, drinking. You know, everybody. Um, uh, everybody is suffering. Liz with her feeding. You know, you could say. Um, but th- this, you know, what do you do? Like there are these kind of major dilemmas in people's lives, right? So obviously he was a a married heterosexual man, you know, married to a woman, had a daughter, fell in love with uh, another man. Um, you, there's the very first scene uh, you see him watching uh, gay pornography. It's sort of particularly sort of de- you know de- slightly depraved scene. He's sitting in his tracksuit. <laughs> Uh, and a young missionary burst through the door to introduce a kind of religious uh, dimension, but also this specific church. Um, and, you know, there's a real kind of crisis there in the sense that does does he have a duty to follow his love, uh, the love that he feels, or should he have stayed with his wife and child, right? It's not answered in the film. There is no easy answer to this question, clearly. I mean, you know, just as many people would say he should stay or he should go, right? Like those things are not um, given any simple solution whatsoever. And it's not resolved in the film, which again is, you know, evidence of its, uh, you know, uh, deliberate and 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 uh, successful uh, ambiguity, just as the question of faith is, is unclear um, in the sense that if uh, Christianity or this particular version of Christianity drives somebody to suicide because of their sexuality, then how can it possibly be... Uh, be good you know how can it possibly be a force for good in the world um the young missionary who's sort of a run he turns out to be a runaway who's stolen a, a small amount of money from his church there's an interesting moment where the daughter um records uh the missionary and takes photographs of him smoking pot which she kind of compels him to do in a way although he admits that he previously was was into smoking pot and that's partly why he joined the church and became uh sort of straight um she then posts this. She has a habit of posting uh, photographs and uh, sort of scurrilous information about people online, right? She doesn't even have any friends. She just posts horrible things about her mother, her father, and then this this boy. But it turns out that this act actually uh, brings the boy back home, right? So his parents get in touch and say, oh, it's, not, it's only money. We don't care. We love you. Please come home. So in a sense, she ends up doing a good thing 
even if her motives were somewhat mixed. Uh, and it's interesting that her father chooses to interpret this act of, of his daughter as a positive act because it demonstrates that she cares, right? And there's a very sentimental dimension to this film, which I can also imagine some critics reacting very badly to, which is to say that the, the lead character ultimately defends this um, position of uh, care. If you care about the world, you know, then you're wonderful. You're beautiful. Every, you know, he says at one point, you're amazing to his daughter. You know, this is really quite sort of soppy, uh, sort of uh, desire that people not only be honest, but that they make a difference in terms of being kind and being nice, not in the be kind sense, the sort of uh, sinister ideology of our age, but in the sense of genuinely caring about somebody else, because in a way nihilism is the, is the worst position you can be in. So there's sort of, you know, there's the duty maybe to he could have stayed married. There's a duty to love. And then there's nihilism. There is this kind of bleakness, which is the the third bad, bad option, if you like. Um, so even though the week is of his dying, it's his final week. Um, the film ends on a note of, of, of acceptance and even optimism, optimism and a kind of, uh, elevation, um, because he finally walks towards his daughter as she has asked him to do before he gets up. Uh, and in doing so, sort of, um, we assume kind of, um, you know, perishes in the endeavor, but he, in a way, is walking towards the the daughter that that he loves, and 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 in some sense has redeemed herself through her through her action, despite her being very angry and uh, upset. So, I yeah, I thought it was a very very uh, interesting film. It was, um, you know, about many more things like religion and perhaps about AI. Is my <laughs> that's my original interpretation that it's really about. <laughs> Uh, you know how how we stop ourselves becoming machines, uh, and how we stop machines taking over. Um, but yeah, I thought it was it was a very very interesting film. Another another great a great film from uh, Aronofsky. Yeah, I mean it's interesting what you're saying because I I really feel the same way. The film is so much about impossibility, you know, and I think that the family relationship is an example of this. There is no solution. What do you do if you have these sort of homosexual feelings, and then you also have, you know, and that. In a way, this isn't to say that the family unit is wrong or anything like that. It's it's always an approximation because we're in a universe that is not at one with itself. But I do think that this what the film does is it kind of like depicts that there is this possibility in the brokenness for this sort of ordinary transcendence, precisely because of the antagonism itself. And that's obviously like psychoanalytically or the, the explanation for subjectivity. Like without the fuck up, there is no human subjectivity. And, you know, so for instance, with, with the, as you say, the, the kid that, um, the daughter tries to expose, the, the miracle is that he's brought back in. You know, there's always a possibility for a miracle. There's always a possibility for a disaster, but there's always a possibility for a miracle. And, you know, human subjectivity being a miracle as a result of antagonism. It's one of the results of antagonism and antagonism at the level of subjectivity creates, you know, thought and emotion and subjectivity and everything. So, um, yeah, it's it's about it's about uh, impossibility, but also the other side of impossibility. And I think you know, as you put the the difference between machines and humans is that the human can be in a state where you know the physical state that this man is in that's possible because of drive and human subjectivity. And I mean, aside from drive, there are like material reasons in terms of like metabolism, all this kind of stuff. But like, it is something that speaks to the very experience of being human that one can starve oneself to death yeah or the reverse 
But this is what I mean. The AI has no body. It's mm-hmm. like people get obsessed with the idea, like, oh, the AI can replicate, mimic no, human thought. And, no. you know, but the AI has no body. Like, it's really fundamental. Like, it cannot feel, it cannot have drives. It doesn't, it isn't human, right? Like, even if you could trick someone into thinking that you were having a conversation with a human, right? It could pass that test, but it's not human. Like, it's, it's so fundamental. <laughs> Yeah. And there are limitations that come from having a body insofar as there's the stuff that's in your body, that's part of your body, that seems to be you. And then the stuff that isn't, that seems to be other. And that distinction is confusing and difficult to grapple with. AI attempts to resolve that problem, not by having, say, a universal body, but the absence of body. And so instead of grappling with, say, all matter all at once in the say, in the way, say, a universe would if it was thinking about itself all in one go, AI is the opposite. It is the absence of anybody and therefore the absence of any perspective. It's not a universal perspective, but the absence of perspective, I think, is kind of what maybe yeah. you're getting at there. No, no, that's that's perfect. Um, no, I agree with that. It's It's like precisely what limits us, makes us not only unique, but also kind of free within the limit, limitations, right? And that, yeah, I, th- I like what you're saying about this. Um, I don't know, almost like the perspectivalism that, you know, of course, we're, we're finite, right? Like, in a way, we're not as good as an AI in some ways, right? Like, we can't reproduce the entire written knowledge of humanity right to this point like an ai can just like grind through all this stuff and then just repeat things um you know just like the students can repeat banal things in their essays right in the, in the film um but it's only when he provokes them because he swears right it, like in the, you know he he loses his job actually this is also in the film right or he's he's kind of laid off right like he writes this message to them just saying Something like just, you know, just effing, just effing put your, just do it. Just say something honest, just write anything honest. And he swears at them and he's sort of, you know, not, not in an aggressive way, just trying to provoke them. And, you know, they say things like, oh, you know, I don't want to be what my parents want me to be. You know, I want to do something else. And, you know, he forces them to maybe pay attention to their desire, right? You know, rather than think, how do I get a good grade in this course? And, you know, yeah, if you tell the AI, say something honest, either right. it doesn't know what to do with that or it knows how to do an impression of having done it, but it can't do it because it doesn't have the drives that would be necessary to do it. Right. I, I do think a lot of the time when, when people talk about, say, the universal or objective reality, there is a conflation that goes on because people both talk about something which has the perspective of everything all at once and something which has no perspective at all. And these things are often kind of talked about with the same terms or at the same time. And the problems that you get when you don't have any perspective at all, say, and and therefore you have a lack of ability to understand beings that have perspective uh, is different from the purely hypothetical case of of something which really has a universal perspective insofar as it really is a universal body. And God is always this this idea of of, uh, really having a universal body. The the conception of, say, God is infinite being. God is all of the being all at once, all together. Uh, 
completely opposite from the way that we often think of universal in the West as a kind of objective or distant or removed from position. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I think, you know, I, I liked very much what you were saying, Benjamin, about the, I don't know, like almost like the, the material reality of, of, I don't know, American dysfunction as well, or dysfunction in the way, you know, it's just a film about dysfunction and, you know, imbalance. And, you know, there are some really quite grotesque scenes, you know, like particularly this one where he kind of goes on an eating rampage and it's it's quite hard to watch, to be honest. Like, you know, it's it's deliberately in your face, the materialism of that body, you know, that you see scenes with, uh, obviously it's prosthetics, but it's, you know, the the close up of his kind of body and i suppose you know the the empty room the the room which you assume is well the room that perhaps they shared um when his i think alan his 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 boyfriend were, was alive and it's extremely neat and extremely tidy and everything is sort of beautiful and you think oh okay so right it's it's obviously not you know the house in general was like in squalor so you say okay so well it's interesting then like you, it's not that someone is necessarily fundamentally tidy or fundamentally okay you know it's just like well they just haven't suffered massive trauma yet you know yeah, <laughs> yeah the universe is always a hop skip and a jump away from wanting to annihilate itself right it, it's always teetering on that line between wanting to be and not wanting to be and and i think that's really expressed in that behavior of the eating which is a kind of of turning in against oneself that death drive that we see in the eating mm. uh, yeah this i mean it's an interesting antagonism as well between so you have the fact and this is this is the sort of death drive of the u.s capitalist economy where this idea of getting into debt is a is a is is is, is present so he says to liz oh i don't want to go to the hospital because i'll get into debt you know and there's going to be a huge amount of debt and obviously okay well, if you're just about to die, does the what what does the debt mean? But also, um, obviously he does have, it turns out, the resources at the end of the film. So there's both this idea that as a human, he could be so in need of making the right decision to get treatment and won't. And that America, the economy, isn't so in need of reform to the extent that it makes ill people get into lifelong ruinous debt. And won't reform. You know, there's something really being pointed to there. And how we we lean further into the symptoms of our problem. The more we're confronted with it, the more we're confronted with how bad things have have become in this country. The more we run away from that into forms of of insanity. I, I was thinking recently about infrastructure, because this whole thing happened with the train accident in Ohio and how everybody in, in U.S. politics just doesn't really want to confront the infrastructure problem as it is. There are people who want to imagine that you could just incentivize the private sector to fix all the infrastructure in the Republican Party. And of course, they won't. They can't. They don't have the resources and it's not profitable to build the kinds of things that need to be built uh, or maintain the kinds of things that need to be maintained. And then you have people in the kind of progressive or libertarian space who 
just fantasize about having completely different infrastructure, you know, not having any roads mm-hmm. and and having you know, all of a sudden public transit and all of a sudden being able to build really high density you know, residential complexes without having to worry about the traffic or the parking that that creates because you you would just have you know monorails and and buses and you know, tunnels and and all kinds of 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 stuff just all of a sudden. But of course, to get there would require this enormous investment. It would also require this this capacity on the part of the state to take all of this land, take all this property and change it out and swap it around in eminent domain, all of these things and overcome all of the oppositions that doing that creates. Uh, and of course, to fix all of the stuff, just to repair all of the stuff that we have, uh, it, it would require an enormous amount of money. You know, Biden's uh, infrastructure spending was split between trying to fix stuff and trying to replace stuff. But even if it was all spent on trying to fix stuff, it would only amount to maybe about a third of the money that America's civil engineers say is really necessary over the next 10 years to get the infrastructure just to a serviceable level. So we have you know, this inability to fix it. We have this inability to replace it. And so you know, we just... Uh, retreat into these fantasies about about other kinds of cities that could exist that maybe do exist in other parts of the world to varying degrees you're in tokyo and in berlin and in amsterdam but that don't grapple with the realities of of what would it actually take to to even begin to grind down that problem Uh, in much the same way that someone who has has gotten to the kind of weight that charlie has you can't even begin to fathom what it would really take to begin yeah. to even do anything to try to be alive. You know, what would Charlie surviving really take? Not just in terms of he would have to go to the hospital, he would have to pay all this money, he would have to change everything about his life. And it's not just that he'd have to eat differently. His life would have to be structured in such a way that he wouldn't be driven to eat. So he would need to relate to everything in a whole new way. He would need to be given meaning, purpose, roles, things that he can't he can't mm-hmm. find. Insofar as he tries to find it by reaching out to that daughter, by trying to make a connection with the daughter that would give him a reason to live, he's having to do that from a position that's already so thoroughly undermined by the previous decisions that he's made that it's not possible to reestablish that relationship. And so even insofar as he does try to get the thing that would give him a reason to live, uh, he's already so thoroughly encumbered by the consequences of what he's done that that thing itself is is thoroughly removed from his grasp and you look at at, at america's railways and and roads they've become a kind of cage for us this this obese cage of strip malls and and consumption that is physically physically a kind of fat around this country and which we are drowning in because we we lack the capacity to sustain all of the buildings and all of the, the, the logistical networks that are necessary to continue to consume and eat everything that we are consuming and eating and and burning through. Uh, and, and yet, you know, to even to say, well, what would it mean to stop? What would it mean to get out of it? Uh, we, we would have to have overcome too much of what it has already done to us. Mm-hmm. to even begin to get out of it. And so it, it, it is, the whole country is like Charlie. Yeah. But it is interesting because what you're saying is so much of um, the human experience is the need for a loss in order to gain something. So 
in order to become a human subject, you have to lose this apparent utopian relationship with your mother. In order to find a caring relationship as an adult, you have to lose the, you have to sort of come away from having this um, libidinal connection to your parents and find it again in a partner. So often, and there are situations though, this is not like a, a solution to everything because there are situations where there's a point of no return, right? But in order to find something, often what is necessary is to lose the fantasy that is protecting you from confronting the reality of what you're living through, which is often because human life is tragic and difficult, inordinately shit. And fantasy is the lifeblood of human subjectivity. We need it. We need it to get going. It's it's so important. But so often fantasy, especially when it's connected to uh, aspects of death drive that that aren't servicing us can keep us captured in the greatest misery. And we can't get beyond the thought that our happiness, often then the more miserable you are, you think that the happiness is, is to be found in that which is really the fetish over the unhappiness, rather than being able to confront the shit and build something, ordinary unhappiness in the shit. And so, and, and obviously, you know, you're, you're pointing this out, we, we see this politically so much. And the irony is, is that because we've lost a proper left, what we've got as a replacement is that which offers the release valve utopic fantasy structure to sustain the abject shit. And the thing, the trick that the capitalist trick is that when anybody points this out and says, actually, the real work is to be done in the here and now to make things that you're called a, a fascist, which is hilarious because it's precisely the an, an, antithesis of the fascist position. The fascist position lives in this kind of uh, utopian purity dynamic where on the other side of an individual group. And, you know, this, this is what creates scapegoats as well, is that you imagine that this world is possible if it wasn't for this group or this event or this thing. But this fantasy world is the thing that's protecting you from engaging in life as it is. And it's extremely difficult to be able to engage in life as it is, but it's what needs to happen often. Yeah, there's this scene where he's he briefly allows himself to go onto the internet and Google his heart condition, his uh, blood pressure reading, and just see what people on the internet say about, you know, if you have this blood pressure reading, what's likely to happen to you, what's likely to be going on. And very quickly, he's so horrified by what he finds that he just shuts the laptop and, and goes back to eating. And I think we are, we are doing this at the state level that the country is doing this. The country is, is unable to tolerate for any sustained period of time, you know, actually thinking about what it's it's done to itself or what it's doing to itself. And so there's this slamming of the laptop and the opening of the candy bar. And that, you know, in some ways, Joe Biden is is the candy bar. <laughs> right. <laughs> wow. Um, the whole Biden administration is the candy bar. It's this, you yeah. know, just, just well, put it away. But this just is put it away. Of politics in general, like no one's going to take on these long term projects, right? Because everyone wants to get elected next time, right? So you're never going to be able to address medium to long term 
problems of infrastructure. Um, you know, I mean, this is why you you have the appeal of a popular fascism, because it will say, right, we're going to make the trains run on time. Right. If somebody turns up in America and says, oh, I'm going to fix the infrastructure, but we have to blame this group for everything that you don't like. I mean, it's we're not like a million miles away from that populist scenario. Right. Like it, this is this is you know, also a very dangerous situation to be in where where a sort of country is in managed decline or things are falling apart because it does allow for that kind of like charismatic populism that will create as, you know, generate a scapegoat and promise these things will be fixed, you know? Well, I mean, the, but that the itself is not a solution. No. The highways were built by Ike. The highways were built by a, an American president who was elected, who shunted through the highway bill and, and got the highways mm-hmm. built. Yeah. The, the difficulty is once you've built the highways, once you've committed to a set of infrastructure and to a yeah. particular kind of growth model, you then have to live with the consequences of the growth that you have engaged in. And the, the issue with the highways, we had the capacity to build them. We did build them. Once we built them, we grew up this whole pile of consumer-driven uh, towns around the highways. We grew up this whole pile of consumer-driven supply chains that involve trucks driving over the highways, bringing in stuff that's come in from the boats on these big, you know, all over the, the country, huge numbers of trucks moving around, piles of useless crap on the highways. So once we build the highways, then we become committed to this whole economic model where the highways are now the arteries of the country and they're clogged full to bursting with garbage, clogged full to bursting with garbage. And we can't tolerate any period of time in which we are not constantly eating and consuming the garbage. We can't, you know, if there's an inflation spike, if there's a price spike and the costs of goods, we lose our minds, we can't handle it. We need there to be constantly flowing garbage into the country. And the highways became the mechanism through which this was done. So now if you say, oh, the highways are terrible, the roads are terrible, the dependence on cars is terrible, the dependence on oil is terrible, we ought to have a whole different kinds of cities. Well, to, to change that, first you would have to alleviate this dependency on the stuff that comes in through the trucks, that comes in you know, not just into a train station and into a yard and then slowly dispersed through a place, but which comes directly to the doors of specific stores, you know, so that you can get all the garbage right where you want it so that everybody can have it as soon as they want it right away at the cheapest possible price. You would have to roll up all of that and you'd have to roll up the whole model of the economy that's built around that. And you'd have to endure the period of, of unemployment and standard living erosion that would come along with getting outside of that thing. And when people actually come face to face with that, they they can't handle it. When people actually see, well, what would it really take to break out of all of this? What would you really have to do? How would you cut the, the trading relationships that feed us full of garbage made by slave labor and sweatshop labor overseas? How would you actually end this? You would have to break the addictions that we've all developed to all of this stuff, and you'd have to break them all at once, and you'd have to somehow manage the political consequences of all of it. Uh, In an electoral system, the, the thing that makes it difficult, it's not that democracy can't plan for the future. Eisenhower planned for the future. The issue is that once you get people used to a set of things, 
you it is impossible to break addictions to desires in democracy. And this is why Plato thinks of democracy as the regime which in which desire is unshackled and which it just grows and grows and grows until it takes over everything. Uh, at the start of democracy, it, it, it seems to work. But once you commit to these decisions that feed desire constantly and continuously until it runs everything, the society becomes unable to have other values of any other kind, and everything is instrumentalized to the fulfillment of desire. And you get what is, you know, even if you don't have a physical individual tyrant, what is effectively a tyranny of desire over everything. Everything is subordinated to getting cheap crap into the store, into your veins as fast as, as humanly possible. And and that's what I think is is the issue. It's not that democracy mm -hmm. can't plan or can't build. It's that democracy builds a cage for itself over time, a cage of uh, of cope. But it's interesting because I do think ideologically there is a a lot of this stuff of um, I don't know if you noticed over over recent years. You can tell what ideology is by what makes you sort of feel warm and fuzzy, and what makes you feel like when you're thinking about it, defending against it, you have to sort of explain yourself and you have to sort of explain it away. But one of them is, um, I actually noticed it after watching Little Women uh, with a friend, you know, the Greta Gerwig one, which I, I just, I couldn't stand. I mean, it was it was really like re a reinterpretation of history for the contemporary girl boss whose desires are fulfilled. And if you question this idea, I, I had a chat with a friend who I went to see it with, afterwards about this idea of this sort of ideology of just getting what you want and having what you want is not is not per se fulfilling and is also comes with da a downside but if you sort of come down on the side of a dialectical relationship to desire and potentially an idea of duty to others above um always getting what you want it, it's uncomfortable today because this ideology is is the is the is the way is the lubrication for this form of consumerism and the whole underpinning of the economy which because no alternative is apparently available because we're so far because we don't want to really you know we talk about climate change but we don't really confront the more short-term issues related to the effects. And I think this, this train crash is an example of this. And it's like the further you get in the hole, the more you have to come up with ideological justifications and fantasy structures to eliminate the possibility of confronting it because the conf confrontation might just kill you. But also the other yeah. alternative might kill you as well. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's you know, brings us back to the the whole question in the whale of whether he should have stayed in the mm -hmm. marriage that he couldn't that exactly. he found intolerable or uh, follow love. You know, there's that French idea that love is a kind of truth that has its own epistemic authority, freestanding from other things, and that ultimately it overcomes whatever else uh, might be binding you. But there's also this American idea of doing your duty, goddammit, and not just going along with whatever you might happen to be feeling like on that day. And uh, I, to me, it's obvious that 
if if the sis, if the daughter if his daughter is what really matters then he needed to suck it up yeah but in practice a lot of people can't do this and as a society we no longer you know praise that kind of sucking up we yeah. uh we tell people to just go get what they want but the thing is there was a misunderstanding about repression there's this idea that repression universally like what repression is like sometimes doing your duty consciously doing your duty not repressing the fact that you've chosen this uncomfortable choice that's not repression actually that's a conscious choice and actually repression is to do with it's like a step prior to that which is repressing of the truth so for instance this following this toxic investment in fantasy is repression so a lot of people think like oh if i just go to coachella and take some mushrooms that's not repression no that can be often more often than not much more repressive well this is this is marcus's reality marcus's repressive desublimation yeah. you know so he, they were already identifying this in the 60s you know no exactly yeah. exactly and the thing is it's like to unrepress the truth to have studied your situation thought about it and said i make this choice even if it's in a 2.2 child family with a white picket friends which people in a cliched sense thinks is repression that's less repressive than a toxic pursuit of the fantasy which didn't which is repressing what's really going on and there's sort of this like shorthand of understanding of you know what what was meant by critical theory or these insights into capitalism and repression in the 20th century it's it's precisely the thing that's become repressive well we're at about an hour so we're going to have to wrap up but you can come and join us on the b side i think we've been flowing pretty well who knows we may kind of pick up and continue with some of these themes over there so to listen to that join us on patreon uh, otherwise thank you so much for listening and have a wonderful rest of the day bye bye bye, bye.